Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome everyone to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Today on the pod, the Premier breaks a deathbed promise he made to Hazel McCallion. Peel region won't be dissolved after all. And nearly four decades after the original promise was made, Ontario may actually be getting beer and wine sales in corner stores. That was well played. Well done. And it's our annual year-end mailbag. We'll answer all of your burning questions. It's Tuesday, December 19th, 2023. So let's get to it. JMM, normally we start the pod with our figurative and literal mailbag, but we're going to save that and do a bigger year-end edition later. Instead, we're going to get quite serious off the top here and discuss a tragic story about a schizophrenic man who died in a provincial jail in Lindsay, Ontario, about an hour and a half east of Toronto. A coroner's inquest investigated that death and determined that the man didn't just die in custody. He was the victim of a homicide perpetrated by the guards. Now, we at TVO have been particularly interested in this story because we have been following it for two years, and it has been the subject of another podcast we do called Unascertained. So let's unpack this a bit for those who haven't followed the story. Who is at the center of it? Uh, this is the story of Suleiman Fakiri, who was 30 years old when he died, um, suffered from mental illness, in uh, in his case, schizophrenia. While he was uh, in custody uh, at this provincial center, uh, he was pepper sprayed. He was uh, given a spit hood, uh, shackled by guards behind his back in uh, a prone position. The obvious follow-up question here, are there any potential legal consequences as a result of the findings of this coroner's jury? No, this is not a, a court of law in that sense, a coroner's jury can describe the cause of death, but they can't impose a criminal penalty or, or liability. Uh, so this is a, uh, a technical definition that uh, Fakiri died of a homicide, but it, it is not describing the officers who uh, are responsible for his death uh, as murderers, if, if our listeners want that kind of a distinction. However, uh, police can use this verdict as a reason to reopen an investigation if they so choose. Um, that that may sound like it is not um, uh, as important as it could be, but uh, it is a huge uh, deal to his family. They have uh, spent much of uh, the last decade uh, trying to get the government uh, to uh, take his death seriously. And the uh, coroner's jury doesn't just uh, find the cause of death. Uh, they also uh, make recommendations. In this case, they have made 57 recommendations uh, to uh, try and avoid these kinds of deaths in the future. Uh, among those recommendations are a, a new oversight body for provincial jails, a better support for family members with uh, mental health issues, and uh, banning people with the most severe forms of mental illness uh, from being held in uh, what's called segregation, or, or what our listeners might know more commonly as a solitary confinement, uh, as Fakiri was. Now, governments accept, but are not obliged to implement the recommendations of any coroner's jury. Do we have a sense about whether this government will move on the recommendations in this case? You know, the historical precedent is 
not immediately, if I can put it that way. Um, you know, I think back to issues like uh, police oversight, where uh, there have been a, a number of coroner's inquests prior to the review that was conducted during the Wynn government uh, by Justice Michael Tulloch. He's now the Chief Justice of the province's highest court. Uh, that recommendation eventually informed new legislation during the Wynn government. Uh, what and that's sort of the generally the way it happens. There is no um, rule preventing the government from moving more expeditiously on these matters if they wanted to. You know, the the House will come back next year. The government will bring all sorts of legislation on all manner of topics. In theory, they could move very quickly on this stuff. But generally, in particular, I would say uh, when it's matters of um, correctional services, law enforcement, that kind of thing, they do very, very broad consultations before uh, they make even relatively small changes. Uh, Unascertained is really a a riveting listen, and they just released a new episode. Uh, Check that out in the show notes. And for our listeners, I also want to point them to our website, uh, where our colleague Nat Bazin spoke with Solomon's brother Yusuf. Uh, they can find that at tvo.org. Now, on to issue one. Our goal in reviewing Peel's local governance structure has always been to provide the highest level of service at the lowest cost to taxpayers. But thanks to the work that has been done by the board over the last few months and in response to municipal feedback, including from regional service providers and first responders, It is clear uh, that full disillusion of Peel is not the best way to achieve this goal. That was Paul Calandra, Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing, last week announcing that Peel Region will stay Peel Region as it is currently constituted for the foreseeable future. Peel, of course, made up of Mississauga, Brampton and Caledon. This is another huge reversal for the provincial government, which had struck a special panel to figure out how to dissolve Peel Region by January of 2025. The province's view is that dissolving Peel would result in significant tax increases for Peel residents and make it harder to provide services and get new homes built, and therefore the dissolution of Peel is off. Now, as you might imagine, reporters attending this announcement asked a lot of questions since this decision did represent yet another... Well, what shall we call it? A change of heart by Doug Ford's government. Autism, Minister Autism, license plates, the green belt reversal, boundary change reversal. Help me out here. Uh, notwithstanding clause uh, on education workers, imposing a contract on them. The Clean list energy. goes on. Which one? Clean energy. Clean energy. I mean, we, we can all name so many things your government has reversed. Does your government think before it acts? Now, that was some pretty uh, intense questioning there from uh, our colleague Cynthia Mulligan. Uh, that was a, a wild press conference. I'm just going to editorialize uh, very slightly and say that a, a number of reporters were uh, very skeptical about uh, Paul Calandra's arguments for why the government is changing its mind. Um, so uh, maybe let's just go over what is actually new about the government's announcement. Uh, first and most obviously, there is no dissolution of Peel region. There is going to be not just a region, but a regional government with the same kind of elected council structure that exists now that will continue to exist into the future. And it will continue to make important decisions about uh, taxes and services uh, in uh, all three municipalities of Peel region. 
the uh, blue ribbon panel that was studying the Peel dissolution is not going to be disbanded. Uh, they are going to continue to exist, but are uh, having their mission refined, let's say. Uh, the new, more focused mandate asks the panel to bring forward recommendations specifically on uh, the delivery of services that support the commitment to build more homes, including uh, land use planning, servicing infrastructure, uh, roads, and waste management. Uh, of course, one of the things that makes this uh, a bigger story than it might have been, is that Premier Doug Ford had made a promise to former Mississauga Mayor Hazel McCallion on her deathbed that he would give Mississauga its independence and break up Peel region. That deathbed promise is now being rescinded for the reasons Paul Calandra gave. Now, perhaps to no one's surprise, the official opposition leader, Marit Stiles, was not completely complimentary with the government's 180 on this. This is not how government should be run in the province of Ontario. It makes us look terrible. We look like a laughingstock. I think uh, the Ford government needs to do better. Now, not that we're trying to pile on here, but the fact is this is one of an increasing number of issues on which the Ford government has reversed itself. I know Cynthia Mulligan from City News gave a partial list in that lead up to her question, but JMM, perhaps you could remind our listeners about some of the other items uh, that were also on that list. Starting back from their uh, earliest time in government in 2018 and 2019, of course, we could talk about uh, their funding of uh, autism services. Um, Then you had the uh, uh, reversal about the new license plates that they issued, which had the small issue of not being able to be seen in the dark. Um, More recently, of course, we've had the Greenbelt reversal, uh, urban boundary reversals uh, for municipalities across the province the threat to use the notwithstanding clause on uh, education workers to uh, end a strike, and then standing down from that threat to use the notwithstanding clause, Uh, uh, renewable energy contracts that they ripped up uh, at at the beginning of their tenure. Uh, The government just announced this week that they are going back to the market for uh, potentially as much uh, much renewable energy as already exists in Ontario. Like They they, they could double the amount of wind and solar, potentially. They, of course, were uh, heavily criticized for or a, uh, let's call it, um, uh, inconsistent approach during COVID where uh, they would lock everything down uh, and then uh, reopen things back up when enough people yelled at them. And I mean, I'm sure our listeners could think of other examples. It's a bit of a list. (laughs) Do you know what the biggest mistake is with elected officials, politicians across this country? They dig their heels in, even though they know it may may not be the right decision, and they move forward. Uh, We don't do that. Premier Doug Ford saying when he thinks he's wrong, he changes his mind. And that's a good thing. Now, we do want to say a word about Paul Calandra here, who is the Minister of Municipal Affairs and essentially got sent into the lion's den to make this announcement. Obviously, that is not an enviable assignment. He knew when he hit that podium in the media studio at Queen's Park that he was going to be uh, hit back, figuratively speaking, with a lot of very tough questions. So, in some respects, you got to hand it to him. He, he spoke with knowledge about the file. He was pretty inflappable in the face of some very tough questioning. He has, I think it's fair to say, become Doug Ford's go-to guy when it comes to cleaning up disasters. Uh, first in his role as long-term care minister, now in his role as municipal affairs and housing minister. And it is an interesting development in his personal political career because when he was a member of parliament in Stephen Harper's government, Most of the attention he got was for being a bit of an overly partisan blowhard, if I can put it that way. Uh, He was nasty. He was tough. Uh, But with his move to the provincial level of government, he is definitely showing a different side of his skill set and personality, which was very much on display during a recent speech, actually. 
Yeah, this is a bit of an odd story, and I, I feel like we're, we might get mail about saying this, but he got kudos for giving a um, gutsy speech in Toronto about a week and a half ago in which he apologized to uh, home builders over the, not just the reversal of the green belt, but really the, the policy chaos that the government has uh, created over the last year. Um, one of the more controversial home builders in the audience is, uh, was uh, Silvio de Gasparis, uh, a name uh, our listeners may remember as being the, the primary beneficiary of some of those changes to the green belt. Uh, the large majority of the lands involved uh, belonged to de Gasparis and, and his companies. Uh, Calandra fessed up to never having met de Gasparis, but apologized to him in a room full of people uh, for basically the... Um, dog's breakfast that the government has made of uh, the housing file. And, you know, and this is, I think, one of the interesting things where it's worth remembering that politics is still made up out of people. (laughs) Um, One of the things that Calandra said to DeGasparis, and this is based on reporting from the Toronto Star, uh, he, he apologized for the mischaracterized, if you, I, I'm trying to th- think of the elegant word here, but, you know, lots of accusations made about, like, mobbed up developers and that kind of thing. Um, Calandra himself, uh, of Italian descent, uh, wanted to apologize to DeGasparis for whatever trouble he caused, not just DeGasparis individually, but uh, Italian Canadians uh, more communally. Right. Now, one more angle we've got to cover on this story, and that is not only was it Hazel McCallion's dying wish to get independence from Mississauga, but it was a big part of what McCallion's successor, Bonnie Crombie, wanted as well. She's now, of course, the Ontario Liberal leader, hasn't changed her mind on Peel's dissolution, but is being portrayed by Calandra as wanting separation, quote, at any cost. Those were the minister's words. Crombie, to the best of my knowledge, has never said disillusion at any cost, but she has definitely championed the idea as the mayor of Mississauga for the dissolution of Peel. Question, JMM, how much of a factor do you think sticking it to Mayor Crombie has been in the government's thinking on this file? You know, it's hard to say. I think a decision like this, you know, this is an embarrassing, very public climb down from a major commitment. Something like this never has just one reason. I think the government was definitely spooked by the price tag for full dissolution, and that was the biggest single reason. But, you know, this is politics, and it would be silly to pretend that denying Crombie a win played no part at all in any of this. Um, And, you know, let's remember that denying Crombie a win happens to also help the Tories in places like Brampton and Caledon, where there are seats to win there as well. What's going on with you and Bonnie Crombie? It seems personal. You haven't congratulated her, which is standard protocol. You say in the legislature she has a house in the Hamptons, which she doesn't, yet you have a place in Muskoka and Florida. Are you afraid of Bonnie Crombie, sir? No, you you know something? We're going to continue focusing on what what we're doing, uh, continue lowering taxes on businesses, the $8 billion we've we've lowered businesses and the burden off of uh, companies, and that's why we've seen tremendous growth. Now, that's an excerpt from last Thursday morning's news conference in which Doug Ford took questions from reporters, in that case from Richard Southern from City News. Did you notice the one word Premier Ford did not say in his response to a direct question about Bonnie Crombie? Did you notice? Uh, Was that he didn't use her name? (laughs) That's exactly right. Doug Ford will not utter the words Bonnie Crombie in answering a question about Bonnie Crombie. Um, You know, for those who believe that she won the liberal leadership, in part because of her unique ability to get under his skin and spook him, uh, every time he gives an answer about a question about her in which he refuses to mention her name or pivots immediately to answer some other question or go off in a different direction, seems to me like it kind of proves the point that her supporters have been trying to make. 
Now, one last thing on this. We used to do something called quote of note when someone said something particularly clever. So let's bring that feature back for this quote of note from official opposition and NDP leader Marit Stiles, who said this as she was leaving the podium after her news conference on this subject last week. Thanks. Can't wait to see what the reverse on tomorrow. Thank you very much. As they say in the world of comedy, that's a mic drop. And now on to issue two. In 2015, former Ontario Premier Kathleen Wynne brought beer and wine sales to grocery stores. And here we are eight years later, and Doug Ford is bringing beer and wine sales to even more locations, including corner stores, gas stations, and big box stores. But, but, not for two more years. JMM, the details if you would, please. As you said, the government is preparing to let uh, many more locations sell alcohol starting January 2026. They are also looking to extend the number of uh, supermarkets that are allowed to have retail licenses. Currently, the cap is set at 450 stores across the province. Uh, They also want to allow stores to sell uh, 12 or 24 packs of beer. Currently, only the beer store uh, can sell larger formats. So this would affect that organization's viability if they're being undercut by other companies. For anybody worried about the beer store's recycling program, uh, it will continue for at least another five years. Uh, In exchange, the beer store is going to retain something close to a monopoly on large beer sales to all those new retailers who will be popping up. Uh, Smaller brewers will be allowed to sell outside of the beer store. They will be allowed to distribute their own beer if they, you know, some small uh, microbrewery, for example. Uh, But if you're looking for a 2-4 of Labatt's or Coors to put on the shelves of your corner store, you will still have to buy from the beer store. Uh, The LCBO uh, will continue to exist and will uh, continue to offer standardized prices province-wide. So if uh, Northern Ontarians want to make sure that they're not getting uh, charged more than uh, urban drinkers in the South, the LCBO is where they're going to want to keep shopping. Um, But other retailers will be allowed more pricing flexibility. Uh, And, and, you know, this builds on uh, really, I mean, several years now of history with this government. Back in 2019, then Finance Minister Vic Fideli put forward legislation to end the master framework agreement with the beer store. Uh, The beer store is a privately owned company owned by uh, Molson, Labatt, Sleeman. Fideli's argument back then was that the uh, agreement that w- that remains in place uh, put these companies' profits ahead of consumers in Ontario. That law was passed, but then the government actually thought better about invoking it, uh, with some warning that it could open the province to up to $1 billion in penalties. A couple of uh, numbers I want to share, and then a question coming out of it. Number w- one, would you believe 97% of beer purchased at the beer store is recycled? 97% of the bottles purchased of beer at the beer store is recycled. So they've had a good and successful recycling program for a long time. We will see if you open up beer sales, whether the recycling and reuse of those bottles is as robust. Uh, It's not unreasonable to think it might not be. Also, another number I saw, 47%. Is that possible? 47% of the cost of beer is taxes? Did I see that correctly? I I believe that's, I mean, taxes and some other uh, policies that we have in Ontario to like uh, guarantee minimum prices that it's it's about I mean not just raising money for the government but also ensuring that alcohol doesn't get so cheap that people are you know using it for bath water <laughs> <laughs> you really got to love your beer to spend 47 percent of the sticker price uh, in taxes but anyway moving on here uh, you made a reference to something called the master framework agreement which is something that both sides have been bound by for a very long time and which is coming up for expiry. 
you know, that's a fancy term, but what exactly does that mean? This is fundamentally the deal between, I mean, it is literally a contract uh, between uh, the multinational brewers that own the beer store and the province of Ontario in its regulation of beer and alcohol sales. The Master Framework Agreement ends in uh, 2025. So the timing of this announcement, I mean, some people might think, oh, they just wanted a, a splashy beer announcement to take the Green Belt and Mississauga and everything else out of the, the headlines. And that might be true, but it also it is also the case that this was the deadline for the government to announce whether it was withdrawing from the uh, master framework agreement. Uh, and that deadline was set many, many years ago, years before Doug Ford even became premier. Um, so the, the province, uh, if it was going to unilaterally pull out of the agreement, the government had to uh, indicate to brewers that it was ending the, the agreement by the last day of uh, 2023. We are, of course, uh, in December 2023. So they, they had to make this decision and make it public uh, at some point in the next two weeks. Uh, otherwise, uh, yeah, they would have had penalties to pay. I don't know if people noticed this, but when Doug Ford came to the microphone to make the announcement about liberalizing beer sales in the province, there was, I, I think we have to call it an unintentional funny moment right off the top of his announcement. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be here in the great state of Etobicoke, beautiful Etobicoke. The great state of Etobicoke? Did the premier change his mind about dissolving Peel and instead decide to dissolve Toronto? Is that what I'm hearing? I mean, this it, this is an issue that's come up. I, people have been arguing for, for de-amalgamating uh, Toronto for a lot longer than Doug Ford has been in politics. Uh, I, I'm going to suggest that I think it was probably just a slip of the tongue in this case. Okay, well, we'll stay tuned just in case this was a hint about future de-amalgamation. We'll let you know. Now, I want to do what um, uh, what guys my age do right now, and that is take you back. And I want to go back a long way back because I remember attending the first ever announcement to get beer and wine into corner stores. And this was in the spring of 1985. So you're, you're not alive yet, are you? I was four in 1985. You were four. Okay, so you were barely alive. I think a lot of people listening to this podcast were not alive. But the circumstances were as follows. David Peterson, who was the opposition leader at the time, the Liberal Party leader, he campaigned on it, beer and wine in the corner stores, in the lead up to the May 2nd, 1985 general election. And all of us who were covering that campaign gathered at a corner store at Keel and Wilson in northwest Toronto. And the guy who owned the store was a fellow named Martin Baranek. And believe it or not, I've bumped into him numerous times in the almost 40 years since then. For whatever reason, we just seem to accidentally bump into each other. And we have a good yuck uh, about um, that event that happened on the 85 campaign in his corner store. This has been, obviously, since it's taken almost four decades to make happen, a hugely complicated promise to make happen. Uh, premier Peterson, when he became premier after that election, was unable to make it so. Here we are almost 40 years later. And we're getting there. Why so tough to bring in, John Michael? I think it's more than just corner store beer sales or, and, and more than just the relations with uh, large international brewing companies. The way we sell alcohol in this province makes a bunch of money for the government of Ontario. And it's a bunch of money that they don't have to raise through sales taxes or income taxes. And so they really like the fact that the LCBO provides billions of dollars that they don't have to raise through more politically painful uh, ways. And so they're very uh, anxious about anything that might disturb that. But there, there are other issues why this 
is all actually uh, kind of complicated. Uh, selling alcohol could be very challenging for small retailers who already have thin profit margins. How do they control for the possibility of theft? Uh, you know, how do they uh, make sure that uh, they're in compliance with what are probably going to be uh, at least somewhat onerous uh, rules from the province about who is allowed to sell alcohol and how? I was just reading about an LCBO up in Midland that just had $2,000 worth of products stolen by two people. Um, LCBOs, at least uh, here in Toronto, I frequently see uh, security guards uh, at the doors watching customers. Convenience stores are probably not going to have uh, that level of uh, security. So, you know, with all these challenges, some may not want to sell alcohol or they could uh, face uh, pushback from their communities. And I, I mean, we're talking about corner stores, right? These are stores in communities. Um, and those communities may not want uh, alcohol in every gas station or, or convenience store. Uh, and then you've got the additional problem that in some cases, uh, these, you know, like a small mom and pop corner store is going to be outgunned by a big box store like a Costco or a Walmart who are going to sell uh, beer and know, box wine in huge quantities. Um, yeah, fill your SUV with a pallet of red. <laughs> um, because the LCBO really does contribute so much money, as I, I mentioned earlier, you know, uh, the, the government is leading about destabilizing uh, that revenue. But I, I do want to emphasize that multiple uh, analyses that have been commissioned by governments of, of different parties have concluded that on net, there's no reason why the government should lose money from these kinds of moves because, you know, this... This gets complicated and some people are very attached to the LCBO and, and I don't want to harsh anybody's vibes, but you don't actually need, if you're the government, you don't need to run the retail chain to collect money. You can just tax things. <laughs> and I, I suspect that is what we are going to see the government do more of. Uh, but there is one other reason why this is a complicated question, and I certainly don't want us to uh, ignore the fact that alcohol has a very uh, obvious and negative public health impact. Um, alcohol is not a benign substance. Uh, the uh, Center for Men Mental Health and Addiction gave Ontario a failing grade back in May for its alcohol control policies. Uh, back when Kathleen Wynne uh, expanded uh, alcohol sales to uh, supermarkets and uh, supermarkets, grocery stores, the public health officials in Ontario actually uh, criticized the government's move, uh, saying that uh, the government was effectively creating a huge new public health problem and not funding public health offices to deal with it uh, commensurately. I don't know if there's anything lower than an F in terms of uh, these grades, but uh, I think if you were already skeptical of what Ontario was doing on alcohol control, uh, you would probably assume that that grade just got lower after uh, last week's announcement. Well, in fact, CAMH did come out and reiterate its opposition to this policy, saying it will only encourage more alcohol consumption, uh, which will create more misery and heartache down the road. So having said all that, though, and having made all the points you just made, I do think it's also worth putting on the record that in many parts of rural Ontario in this province, this is just such a nothing burger because oh, yes. they, of course, have had beer and wine in corner stores forever. They're called agency stores. And if you, for example, you know, uh, on Manitoulin Island, where I spend some time in the summertime, uh, there's a little village there of 100 people called Kagawong. And, you know, Kagawong's just not big enough for its own LCBO and its own beer store. And so like many other small hamlets, small towns, whatever, across Ontario, <laughs> the corner store in Kagawong has sold beer and wine and harder stuff as well, um, you know, for as far back as I can remember. So for many people in rural Ontario, they'll be watching this announcement with fascination that the big city slickers have finally caught up with them. And now on to issue three. 
We asked you to send in your burning questions, and we've got a virtual mailbag full of them. We've plucked out some of the best ones. So, JMM, you ready to go? I am uh, ready as ever, Steve. What do you got? Okay, here's our first email from a listener named May, who writes, Given all of the recent allegations of misconduct by Ontario politicians and their staffers, what could accountability look like for our elected officials? To clarify, there's the repercussions today, but then also, what would need to change to prevent corruption from taking over our government? Ooh, tough question. Okay, JMM, you want to take a run at that one? Yeah, that is a biggie. Um, I guess the first thing I would say is that uh, despite appearances, despite what you might uh, guess from the last year, you know, a lot of things are legitimately better on the accountability front than they would have been in previous eras. The fact that we know as much as we do about the Greenbelt scandal from this year, for example, is actually because we have some built-in oversight mechanisms, the Auditor General and Integrity Commissioner, uh, just to name two, that worked as they are designed to. Frankly, it might be even more important that we have a strong press investigating the government. And uh, Auditor General Bonnie Lissick specifically cited uh, news reporting as, as uh, something that helped her investigation. Um, and, you know, I hope our listeners appreciate just how important uh, a, a dedicated and uh, maybe sometimes even antagonistic press uh, can be. If I have to be a, a bit more grim about all this, um, I, you know, how, how do we uh, prevent corruption from overtaking government? I mean, there is no substitute for voters being willing to punish governments. Um, and if voters don't keep governments on a short leash, so to speak, there is a pretty natural tendency for uh, premiers and prime ministers in our system to overreach. Um, I guess, so I guess my, my answer would be that, you know, we could talk about reforms legislation, constitutional changes, whatever that might help at the margins. And, you know, I actually wrote about one court case uh, last week for TVO that I think is, is really important and could set a, a, an important precedent. Um, but at the end of the day, this comes down to voters, what they're willing to uh, swallow and what they are willing to punish. Our next question comes from listener Ian, who writes, how does someone become nominated as a candidate for a party? Is it fairly open and transparent or is it done from the top down slash behind closed doors? Uh, a very simple question, Ian, but a very complicated answer, which is basically the answer is all of the above. Now, let's go back to first principles here. When we have general elections, the candidates whose names are on the ballot affiliated with a major political party, they don't just show up there and get automatically on the ballot. You've got to earn that right. So, for example, if you want to be, let's say, the conservative candidate in leftover shoe, Ontario, I'm making up a writing name here. You got to do a bunch of things before you can become the conservative candidate in leftover shoe. Most importantly, you've got to sign up supporters and then you've got to get those supporters to show up at a nomination meeting and then you got to get them to vote for you. And in many cases, there are going to be multiple candidates seeking the nomination. So you will be competing against them and all of their supporters as well. And obviously, the trick is to sign up as many people as you can, get them to show up at the nomination meeting, then stick around in case there are multiple ballots. And very often, these things are not decided on the first ballot because there are multiple candidates. And whoever wins that nomination meeting becomes the candidate and their names get put on the ballot at election time. Now, that sounds pretty basic, except that I'm going to tell you where politics comes into play. What if a party leader has someone that they think would be a great candidate in leftover shoe riding, but the local people, let's say on that riding association's executive committee, have a different candidate in mind? Well, two things can happen. In some parties, the leader has the legal and constitutional authority to appoint a candidate 
to represent the party in that riding. So no nominating meeting, just an appointment by the leader. And Doug Ford did that a lot back in 2018 for his first election as PC party leader. Remember, he became leader just three months before the election. And he said, we don't really have enough time to hold a whole bunch of nominating meetings to fill up the ridings unspoken for. So I'm just going to appoint a whole bunch of candidates. And he did that. Now, what Doug Ford said was partly true. There wasn't much time before the next election. But it was also partly the case that he wanted his own candidates in there, as opposed to those he inherited who might have been loyal to the leader Ford replaced, namely Patrick Brown, who was ousted by the caucus earlier that year. The other thing that can happen is that the party can still hold its nominating meeting in left overshoe. But if the leader favors one candidate over another, they can put their thumb on the scale for their preferred candidate. Here's an example. You can tell the candidate you like, psst, the nominating meeting will be held in three weeks. I'm not telling any of the other possible candidates that. So you get out there, sell memberships like crazy for three weeks, and then I'll announce that the nominating meeting date is happening and everyone else will be caught with their pants down and you'll have a huge advantage because you knew the date ahead of time and they won't. Sometimes a leader can loan people and resources to a preferred candidate as well. So, Ian, as you can see, there are plenty of ways the leader can stay out of things and let local democracy unfold, or they can very much insinuate themselves into things and help their favored candidates win. Leaders have power. It's worth emphasizing here that as far as the law goes in Canada, uh, political parties are mostly considered to be like private clubs that are allowed to have their own internal rules. Uh, in Ontario, there are campaign finance rules governing what you're allowed to spend in a leadership race, for example. But if, say, the Liberal Party wants to give its leader total unquestioned power to choose candidates no matter what local riding members say, there's no uh, legal or constitutional barrier to doing so. Now, I, you know, this is worth discussing, right, given how crucial parties are in our democracy, right? Like the vast majority of federal MPs or provincial MPPs get elected as members of political parties. Uh, given how crucial they are, some people have argued that we should apply some more democratic principles, uh, not just uh, between political parties, but inside them as well. Uh, for now, mostly we have not. Yeah, it's amazing, frankly, how, how little democracy there often is at one of the fundamental foundational aspects of our democratic system. But you're right. So far, uh, nominating meetings and political parties have managed to avoid a great deal of what we might call basic democratic principles. Here's a question from our email from listener Jason, who writes, uh, Hi, Pakin and McGrath. Why do we call them MPPs in Ontario instead of MLAs? Has it always been this way? If not, who started it? Thanks and love the show. Ah, the answer, Jason, is because. That's the answer. <laughs> Just because. Well, actually, let me embellish on that a little bit. Um, I do remember when I was a kid, I, the, people didn't refer to Queen's Park as the Legislative Assembly. I don't remember hearing that at all. We called it the Provincial Parliament, or sometimes even just Parliament. Uh, and for some reason, we seem to be able to distinguish between the one in Toronto and the one in Ottawa. So by extension, the politicians who got elected there have come to be known as MPPs, members of Provincial Parliament, rather than MLAs, members of the Legislative Assembly, which is also correct, incidentally, just not used as much. And I think actually, Jason, if you go to the Queen's Park subway station on line one in downtown Toronto, as you try to exit the subway station, you will see old signs, uh, you know, uh, near the exits on the way up to the street. 
and the arrows basically say this way to the parliament buildings or this way to provincial parliament. Um, those signs persist, and so do MPPs. And yet, uh, this isn't actually um, set out in law anywhere. It's it's all basically informal and, and the result of... I, I think there was one motion at Queen's Park decades ago where they agreed to adopt the style of members of provincial parliament. Uh, but if you read, for example, uh, the, the law that governs the uh, the pay of MPPs and the uh, the the powers of uh, the legislature. It's called the Legislative Assembly Act, and uh, it refers to members of the Legislative Assembly. It does not refer to uh, members of provincial parliament. Um, we all just use MPPs, and uh, you know th- these these terms also change over time, or, or they they can evolve over time. Of course, uh, we've told the story on this podcast before of how uh, the premier used to be styled the Prime Minister of Ontario, uh, a a moniker that was dropped. And and now we refer, of course, to the Premier of Ontario, except in French, where we still refer to le Premier ministre de l'Ontario. And people will also notice that if they want to send an email to any member of provincial parliament, uh, the email address of every MPP is the name and then dot O-L-A, Ontario Legislative Assembly. It's not P-P, it's (laughs) O-L-A. So... In terms of email, it's still legislative assembly, but in regular parlance, uh, at least since I was a kid, it was always provincial parliament. Okay, here's another question from an ex-user. His name is Ryan, and he writes, is there a correlation between the winner of the plow match and the next premier? Okay, this is very cute. Maybe we should start by you, JMM, telling everybody uh, what the plow match that Ryan is referring to, what is that exactly? Uh, this is the international plowing match, which is held uh, somewhere in Ontario every fall. And it is one of the signature events on the provincial political calendar. Uh, every major party leader, and uh, frankly, most MPPs, uh, will go uh, somewhere in rural Ontario. The plowing match moves around, but next year it will be in Lindsay. Uh, and they make speeches and they hold meetings and they generally get an earful from representatives of uh, rural Ontario generally, and uh, particularly the the agriculture sector. So as part of all of these festivities, there is also traditionally a contest to see which party leader can get on a tractor and drive the straightest furrow. Um, It will not shock our listeners, I think, that as far as I can tell, there is zero correlation between anyone's (laughs) skill on the tractor and their political success. Just to make one obvious point, uh, because of the circumstances in which he took over as PC party leader, Doug Ford had not even attended uh, the plowing match as a leader prior to winning the election in 2018 and yet won a a pretty substantial majority in the Legislative Assembly later that year. Right on. And and it's just an indication of how urbanized this province has become and how much less agricultural it has become. Because I do remember, not that I was alive for this, but I do remember reading that back in the day, Tom Kennedy, who was uh, a former agriculture minister and a short time, for a short time, I think between 49 and 51 was the premier of Ontario, uh, they, they used to say about Tom Kennedy when he went to these things, that man can drive a straight furrow. <laughs> so that was considered high praise back in the day. That man can drive a straight furrow. <laughs> okay, here's our final question for the year from listener Ravi, who asks, the lack of an updated timeline for when the provincially funded Eglinton Crosstown light rail line in Toronto will open for revenue service gives me the impression that this project lacked the oversight required for the largest current transit project in North America. Metrolinx's CEO said in September that he has a good idea about when the service will begin, but will not share his forecast. 
Do you think Metrolinx is being directed by the transportation ministry or minister to not publicly disclose an estimated timetable? And if so, why? The lack of detail on the project dashboard from Metrolinx's website does not instill confidence for this long overdue project. Keep up the great work. Kind regards, Ravi. Okay, thanks for that, Ravi. JMM, over to you for an explanation of one of the most inexplicable projects in Ontario history. So, Ravi, I think the short answer is that yes, um, we, we do know from prior reporting that uh, all of Metrolinx's communications, and not just those about the Eglinton Crosstown, um, are frankly being vetted by the government. Um, I don't think we can say uh, concretely that political direction from the government is why Phil Verster, the Metrolinx CEO, isn't speaking specifically about this issue. But by the same token, I don't think our listeners are obligated to give the government the presumption of innocence on this. Now, why would the government do this? Well, the simple explanation here is that they pretty clearly don't have the kind of confidence in their ability to forecast opening day that they would like. They don't want to say, for example, that the crosstown will open on July 1st only to have the date slip to September or later. That would be politically embarrassing. Um, and to connect this to an answer that I gave earlier, you know, this goes back to the basic question of whether voters reward accountability and punish governments that obstruct the, the free flow of information. Uh, the government is clearly calculating that the political downside of potential embarrassment by uh, forecasting a, uh, a date, an opening day for the crosstown that, the, that then slips, the, the political downside of that is worse than the upside of letting the public see how these decisions are being made made. I have, I have to say, JMM, a little bit of sympathy for Phil Verster and the province on this one, just a little bit, in as much as when the Confederation line was opened in Ottawa, they opened it too early. They had to shut it down numerous times. It did shut down numerous times because of things screwing up. They made they made an announcement to open the line that was clearly too early without having worked out the bugs. And now everybody's got egg all over their faces on that one. Uh, they've obviously learned from that, and they're trying to avoid that in this case. But am I right in saying that I think this thing is 96, 97 percent done already? It's the last three percent that's proving to be absolutely devilish? That is what we've heard from other reports, that it, it is almost entirely complete. They have, in fact, started running or, or I believe will start running uh, some uh, trains on, on parts of the line to sort of test them out. Uh, you know, you, you obviously want to do extensive testing before you let large crowds of people get on these machines uh, for exactly the reasons you're talking about, that in Ottawa, they, they did rush the construction, they rushed the opening, um, and then uh, they put the train into service and there was a derailment. Mercifully, uh, nobody was, was killed but there were, I believe, some injuries. And um, yeah, I mean, you are quite correct that there are good reasons for them to want to be careful. The public communication side of things, I think, is is um, more questionable. I think uh, if a Phil Verster uh, has a, uh, a sense of when they might be able to open it, I think there would be ways of communicating that to people while still being honest that deadlines can slip because obviously we take public safety as our highest priority. I mean, you and I have read press releases like this our entire lives. <laughs> we could probably write them blindfolded at this point. On that note of consensus, with which I agree, we're going to bring this thing to a close. That is the On Poly podcast for this Tuesday, December 19th, 2023, the last episode of the year. 
Make sure to follow our show on Apple Podcasts so that you get notified each time a new episode is available. And if you already follow our show, help a friend follow the show too. Any feedback you have, we're happy to hear it, good, bad, or indifferent. Write us an email, and here's the email address, onpolitics at tvo.org. This week's episode was produced and edited by Matthew Amara. Our managing editor is Katie O'Connor. Production support from Christine Gardner and Jonathan Hallowell. That's our last podcast for 2023. Until next year, everybody, bye-bye. Bye-bye, everyone. Happy holidays and a happy new year. I have a, uh, a a carbonated beverage here that I thought for my prompt of nearly four decades after the original promise was made, I would just crack open the can as if it was the sound of beer. Beautiful. All right. Oh for the record, God. it is non-alcoholic. Oh, that hardly seems any fun. <laughs>